Welcome to the second episode of the podcast series on humanitarian crisis and the impact of COVID-19 in the global south. Today's episode, we will be majorly focusing on what's happening in Latin America. As we all know, Latin America is the entire continent of South America in addition to Mexico, Central America and the Caribbean islands. The region is highly affected by inequality, organized crime, disaster, civil conflict, and thus ending up on the global humanitarian watch list. Today, we have with us Mr. Mark Lee, who is a lawyer from Peru. He is a corporate lawyer on M&A transaction and an Austrian economics promoter. Sir, it is a pleasure for us to have you with us today, and we extend a warm welcome to you. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here again and for being considered all the time. Uh, for me, it's a big pleasure to share all type of opinions and different ideas that we can discuss with you. And I'm very grateful to, to be again invited to discuss about, uh, I think, an important topic that everyone should know about what uh, exactly happened with Latin America, according to the last data for the COVID-19 consequences. So I'm ready to, to share with you everything you want. Yes, sir. So uh, to start off with, our first question would be, we know that Venezuela has been witnessing a deteriorating humanitarian crisis for a long time now, which has caused people to flee the country and the econ economy has been collapsing. So uh, what do you think, sir, according to you, can be the possible future of the country? Uh, you mean exactly for Venezuela, right? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, uh, Venezuela is a typical case that many of us uh, warned a long time ago about the uh, future predictable but consequence of the, the socialist ideas. I, I mean, generally, when we talk about socialist consequence, yeah, we have to be aware that Venezuela... Uh, has changed its constitution, uh, if I'm not wrong, before 2000. And it was one of the most important flag campaigns promoted by Hugo Chavez, the ex-president of Venezuela. And Hugo Chavez oh, all the time was proposing to change the constitution for uh, supposedly uh, real social justice, but what exactly what Chavez and his regime uh, exactly did is change the Venezuelan constitution to provide a more power and control power to the government, his government. Uh, when this started, Venezuela uh, started having a dictatorial uh, government, uh, authorities with no power controlling, and that was exactly the socialism. But uh, in that time, people didn't believe that it could happen. Unfortunately, it happened exactly uh, as we mentioned, as we weren't for many years, because all these consequences that Venezuela is still suffering is the same consequences that all countries in the whole world has suffered as consequences of applying socialist or estatist ideas and proposals. That is something devastating. In the most terrible time for Venezuela began 
in 2014 because uh, Venezuela started after the new constitution was established, started to produce its own oil. And that was, uh, in that time, one of the best things that happened to the Chavez government because the government was completely uh, aware and completely able to provide more employees in one of the most biggest and important oil public companies they have. Uh, we are talking about PDVSA. Um, PDVSA uh, basically is the biggest oil company that Venezuela has. And in 2014, the oil prices were increased at all. So what economically Chavez uh, first government years did is promote a big and a long and predictable uh, increase of employees in this company, in this public company. So in the first term, uh, everyone can see that if you are being uh, able to provide more jobs or to create more jobs, even not producing more oils consumption, uh, you are generating of course, it is artificially uh, more uh, wealthness. This is something that Venezuelan people believed was the real growth or the real prosperity. Uh, only because the big and the most important all public company started to uh, acquire, do it to the uh, increase of the oil prices in the whole world, uh, Venezuela PDVSA company start to have more more jobs for example in only four years in only four or five years the number of employees in this public company moves from uh, 40,000 approximately to 80,000 so you can you can imagine uh, how this company was able to hire more people not producing more oil the only reason was that the price was increasing. So that's the only thing. The price were increasing immediately. And that was a boom for the oil price market. And that was, uh, I was taking as an advantage by, by this public company. Unfortunately, in 2014, going to 2015, uh, Venezuela, it started to suffer <laughs> the same magic thing. I mean, the oil prices reduced until that the cost of producing oil was not the handle, was not possible to handle by the PDVSA company. And having in account that all these uh, new constitution uh, had a different, not to familiarize private investment rules, uh, the only economic solution and option that the Chavez government had at that time was to start to create debt. So they started receiving debts and debts and debts. And in the long time, economically, uh, this bad idea generated uh, inflation, a big and unstoppable inflation that uh, passed in unpredictable numbers. And if I'm not wrong, then the, the 
the average of the inflation in Venezuela is 4,000, 4,000. And this was something that destroyed at complete and destroyed uh, step by step all the economy and the business structure that was uh, still surviving for that time uh, in Venezuela. For example, and to illustrate this and how tragic tragedy it was, you woke up one day and you go to buy a bread and imagine that is $1 approximately and you go back to the same place to buy the same thing and the price increased three times in one day. And it was increasing every, every day until business companies start not feeling sure that it's a good idea to keep uh, growing or trying to make new business in a country where the inflation was not stopped. And it was practically predictably uh, unstoppable. That's something that changed for complete the situation in Venezuela that make worse the economic crisis that this uh, country uh, was suffering since years ago. Uh, in 2015, going to 2016 approximately, a big and numerous uh, amount of people start to flee for many reasons. The, main, the most important reason why people flee from Venezuela is definitely uh, surviving of the dictatorial government because it's a dictatorship government. It's a super bad regime. Uh, I don't know if communist is exact word how to describe uh, the government of Chavez was and now the Nicolas Maduro, his successor of Chavez, that is now the current president of Venezuela. But definitely uh, people start to flee a lot. Uh, according to the last numbers of the United Nations, approximately two or three million of people in the most number, or most of them younger people, uh, had fled uh, from Venezuela to different Latin American countries. Especially most Venezuelans has fled to uh, Peru, in Peru, we have an uh, important migration movement from Venezuelans, and also Venezuelans move to and migrate to Colombia, some of them to Ecuador, Chile, a little bit from Brazil. Uh, but imagine having two or almost three million people that flee from a country. So you can imagine the crisis was really, really terrible. Uh, now the government or Nicolas Maduro is trying to go back to the main ideas of free market because it's the only thing that can work. <laughs> and that, fortunately, uh, that this regime is trying to be more friendly, is trying to be more familiarized with the important and the most uh, incredible ideas that one day ago, made Venezuela one of the richest country in the whole world. Uh, I hope this situation keeps going um, or moving up in a good trend because it's important that Venezuela uh, remain steady in an economic growing 
And it's important that Venezuela take back uh, the main ideas that all nations need to grow and develop uh, a real prosperity. And some Venezuelan, some Venezuelan had to return uh, home because, you know, even having in account that Latin America uh, have especially four important countries to invest, to make business. They are greater economies to make different uh, type of agreements internationally of cooperation for commerce. Uh, you have Peru, Brazil, Mexico, a little bit far from here, from South America, but it's a strategic partnership. And Colombia, Chile, uh, Colombia, Chile, Venezuela has a good relation, but definitely uh, these people start to flee to this new, most prosperous country. But these countries, despite they have a constant economic growth, we are not in the perfect economic and social situation. Uh, because when we start to receive a lot of uh, refugees from Venezuela, especially younger people, super young people, poor people, uh, unfortunately, and it was predictable to be honest, uh, a lot of criminals, a lot of people with uh, bad customs, or even uh, a lot of these type of bands, uh, organized crime bands, they came to Peru. And our insecurity level uh, has increased since the Venezuelan uh, refugees movement start. And this is because Peru all the time having a good and a friend uh, migration policy that allows people from different parts of the country uh, and allows people, I mean foreigners, uh, to come to Peru and make Peru's home, to make a new dream here. Uh, of course, the restrictions to, uh, to avoid this situation was not controlled because the idea all the time was like it was a humanitarian crisis that Peruvian government had a special position to help and support Venezuelans that are fleeing from the regime or social regime or dictatorship regime of Nicolás Maduro. And we were friendly, we are still fr being friendly and our restrictions in comparison to other countries were the most flexible. Because if you compare uh, what Ecuador, uh, they request to get into the country or even uh, Chile, Colombia, they were a little bit more uh, stronger than us. We were completely flex flexible because we are aware that in the terrorist time that Peru suffered in the eighties, a lot of Peruvian had to flee to Venezuela and Venezuela opened its border to receive Peruvians fleeing from the terrorists. In, in the 80s. And that was a good gesture that we assume a good, friendly international relation with Venezuela that or a government of uh, PPK, it's the ex-president of Peru, uh, opened the borders uh, in a friendly way 
given all the facilities to these uh, refugees to get into our country to get a new life. So to sum up, uh, this humanitarian crisis that started in Venezuela in 2014 as consequence of applying the devastating socialism uh, ideas and proposal that the state should control, the state should manage, should guide the economy. You know, all these type of ideas were establishing a lot of people from Venezuela had to flee. And we're still having a specific problem with the migration of Venezuela. But uh, if you analyze in a deeper way, all the consequences of the uh, bad decisions taken by these governments are being uh, reflected and are being shown, are being shown in different Latin American uh, countries. For example, Peru is one of them because Peru is the first country uh, where a lot of Venezuelans are now residing. And this is basically because our country, Peru, um, has fortunately until now one of the most uh steady and um, constant economic growth in the whole world of course for the pandemic peru had uh, a little bit fair in our economic growth uh, and also we fail approximately 13 13 percent of our gdp uh, as other countries too but we now as country are still trying to find a good economic pathway to recover the previous prosperity we generated in the last 30, 40 years. So that is how I can sum up or summarize everything I expose now, that the Venezuelan humanitarian crisis affected indirectly uh, the economy of Peru, the economy of other countries, because Peru ha has approximately two or two, two million half of Venezuelan refugees, that a lot of them uh, have a good profession, they are professionals, uh, even some of them uh, had in Venezuela business, uh, but they unfortunately uh, were forced to flee for a better life, to survive, and to keep dreaming for a real prosperity uh, with the basic social uh, things that, in theory, must be provided by the government. And I hope the situation can be a little bit much better because Venezuelan government uh, is uh, taking and turning around uh, to the main capitalist ideas. Some companies are returning to Venezuela to invest. Uh, some investors are trying to be more familiarized with the new Venezuela vision of the market. Uh, they need to do that because there is no more option if you want to have a prosperous country. Uh, definitely, you need to open your markets, provide a good uh, legal security and also a political stability and I think those are the, the main important factors that make 
uh, your country really interesting to the world. Uh, okay, sir. So I have a follow-up question. So we know that uh, the, now the US have put bans on Russian oil imports and now the Washington is aiming to increase the production in other countries such as Venezuela. So do you think with the current situation, if demand rises, Venezuela, will Venezuela be able to increase its production? This is a good, an important, interesting question. To be honest, uh, I have never think about the situation can become earlier because when the the war with Ukraine starts, uh, the production of the Russian oil starts to stop because now the sanctions and uh, punishments that Russia is receiving from different countries, especially from United States, Venezuela is being seen as an important and strategic partnership. Because the United States consider now Venezuela uh, a good partnership to, to buy more oil than before. Because one of the main ideas uh, of Biden's uh, administration is to keep far all type of oil Russian production, right? So if you see that your major producer and your major producer of oil that is Russia is having uh, a war. You have other options too. And one of the most important options in the whole world for oil is definitely Venezuela. So to answer your question, if it, it, this situation could change the current reality and maybe the perspective and how can be Venezuela in the next five years, I think if the war if the war continues and the sanctions imposed to Russia make it stronger, make it strange, uh, definitely Venezuela will become a good partnership, not only for the geopolitical position that Venezuela has, because it's more convenient to buy oil from Venezuela than from Russia. I think it's a short distance. And Definitely, Venezuela will be uh, a good actor now. If I'm not wrong, Biden called uh, two weeks ago, approximately. Uh, Biden talked directly and called and talked directly with uh, with Nicolas Maduro. And in this call, I suppose Biden <laughs> proposed to Nicolas Maduro to start or return the older uh, business partnerships agreement that the United States had with Venezuela. In the case, in the supposedly case that Venezuela accepts uh, to work for uh, or produce more oil in favor or in order to fulfill the supply order to United States, definitely Venezuela will have a good chance to, to recover the devastating economy they had. But I'm not sure yet. Maybe Venezuela keeps uh, a not friendly attitude to deal or accept to deal with United States. But if Nicolas Maduro has a good 
strategy or vision of its country. I think Nicolas Maduro will accept to provide more oil to the United States and this business will make Venezuela a little bit richer. And probably Venezuela can take this bad situation in Ukraine as an, a big historical advantage to recover its economy in a shorter period of time. Yes, sir. So uh, my next question would be pertaining to drug trade. Uh, so the drug trade in South America is, uh, you know, often portrayed from a very disastrous lens. But uh, it is also said that sometimes trade provides livelihoods to many. So how do you think the Latin American governments can balance the good and bad of the drug trade? Uh, well, it depends on what type of governments we're talking because the governments we have, they have different perspectives, to be honest. And when they are in campaign or politicians, they identify like, I'm not of the left, I'm not of the right, so I have this type of proposals. I want to do this, I, I will do this, or I will try to change this. But when they arrive to their government, they crash with the big uh, unpredictable reality that Latin America is a complicated continent to govern. It's complicated because in Latin America, you have not only poor people, you uh, also have people with business, people with a uh, different identity, people with a di different uh, interesting or different perspective of life, different perspective of uh, social ideas. Uh, and this is complicated to government. So according to your question, like if the government can be able to do this, I think it will depend on many factors. I'm not in a good position to answer it correctly because we will need to identify what country we are talking about. Maybe for Peru can be more possible, maybe for, uh, for Chile now, because Chile now is having a constitutional reforming taking place so it will depend latin america is in, uh generally talking an unpredictable political political uh continent it, you cannot predict <laughs> everything in latin america so i think latin america has uh, a good uh, an important curious particularity that each country has its its reality with its politicians and they act similarly, but they are unpredictable. <laughs> so if we start thinking for that, yeah, definitely something that we cannot be aware or sure that it will happen or they are in a good condition to, to comply things that they normally should do. Okay, sir. So, so do you think uh, was globalization uh, one factor that added on to the... Uh, you know, increasing efficiency of drug trafficking, which ultimately increased the crime rates in Latin America? Uh, I think globalization has good consequences because globalization implicates country should be connected to make business, geopolitical, uh, commercially, and also socially. Because once you open your markets to trade and commerce, with other countries, this normally also involves to open borders. 
And that is the, the main bridge that connects cultures. And definitely it's a good idea. I, I agree with the idea that globalization uh, brought prosperity to poor continent and especially countries. And one of the good example or sample of that is Peru. Peru needed globalization to stay uh, in the economic growth pathway. And what Peru is today is thanks to the globalization that was recognized and that was respected and promoted by the different regulation established in our constitution of 1993. So globalization, in my opinion, is good, can have a complicated, maybe difficult consequences that can be avoided. I think yes, but generally globalism uh, and globalization allows the world to be more connected than before. And I think Latin America in the last 40 years changed a lot thanks to the globalization. More continents, uh, specifically in this continent, more countries got open uh, their borders, their, their markets, and now you can appreciate even between Latin American countries making between them business uh, trade agreements and forming important groups or clubs to deal in a major volume with biggest uh, markets like Australia, China, Europe, United States. Uh, for example, we have here, uh, I think, in my opinion, as consequence of globalization, um, we called uh, the Asia Pacific uh, group that basically belongs to to these important four more stronger economies in the whole continent. Uh, I mean, South America, Chile, Peru, Colombia, and Mexico. They have this special club that is called the Asia Pacific Commission that. Every time they deal with a European continent, continent or Asia, as we are the the fourth more the fourth more important economies in the in Latin America, we have more power to deal and to be representative in face or in behalf of this continent to close deal or agreements, commercial agreements with uh, these important markets as Australia, United States. And we already uh, had uh, and got some important agreements for commerce, for trading. So globalization definitely helped a lot to, to, to these countries in, in Latin America, especially Peru, Colombia, Mexico, because the, the, the basement of these four greater economies in the whole world, uh, we can describe easily private property, contracts, respect to the contracts, um, rule of law, that is really, really important rule of law that some politicians in Latin America, they don't comprehend and they don't understand yet how this rule of law works and the most important political stability. You know, every country need 
political stability. You can have a lot of problems in the country, but if you don't have uh, political stability, practically you destroy all the incentives that can attract different uh, companies or foreign invest investments. So it's really important to keep the political problems so far from how the government and generally the state works. Because if political uh, problems, if political instability can easily affect your social market, can affect easily your economy, trust me, your country is um, destined to fail immediately in some years because that's what happened. Exactly what happened with Venezuela after they changed the, the constitution they had because the, the, the new constitution of Venezuela allows the government and the state to be more particip uh, to participate more in private decisions or to control more the economy, to expropriate or yeah, that is terrible, but this is exactly what happened in Venezuela. And that is the result of joining uh, wrongly, of course, uh, the political issues with the economy world. So uh, in my opinion, those must keep completely separated. But globalization, one of the, of the uh, big uh, basement of globalization is that a economy should keep far from the consequence of political instability. And I think uh, Colombia, Chile, Peru, uh, Mexico, despite the political common problems we have, because we have similar problems, one of the most uh, important uh, I should mention, and I think is the more recognized around the world, is the corruption. Every time you talk about countries like Peru, Chile, Colombia, you will identify them as the four most important economies in Latin America. But in the same time, <laughs> these countries have the most highest number of corruption cases uh, accused or a lot of politicals, uh, polit politicians that result accused uh, and they are in prison. For example, in Peru, let, just let me give you this important information. Uh, of the last four or five presidents we had in Peru, one killed himself when the police arrived to his house to arrest him for an investigation of corruption. This famous president that was the younger president in the whole Peru in the 80s, and he reelected in 2014, and he was being investigated by a corruption case. He took again when the police arrived to his house and he killed himself. <laughs> Imagine, one president. The other one was in prison too, even with his wife for corruption cases. I mean, Ollantumala. Uh, the third one, PPK, uh, this Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, that is the third. Um, it was, uh, to be honest, was academically and professionally was the, the best uh, profile of president Peru had. But 
unfortunately, this president was also accused for corruption cases. Um, he was being investigated and he was forced to give up to the position of president. It, it was what happened with PPK. And, you know, <laughs> we have four, five presidents investigated uh, for corruption cases, uh, for corruption uh, criticism. And even now, even now, our current president, Pedro Castillo, has been accused for corruption cases because closer members of his family were making corruption deals. So this is so terrible. So despite the economic growth these countries had in the last 50 years, something common between all Latin American prosperous countries uh, is the corruption. Trust me. Corruption is the common element that you will find in Mexico, you will find in Peru, you will find Colombia. Uh, you will immediately identify that in these countries, that corruption levels are really, really worrying. It's are really, really worrying. Presidents, ministers, important executives of the government. Yeah, this is so terrible, but this is the common problem despite the globalization brought prosperity to, to those countries. Definitely that's something sad because was, uh, it should not be happening, but it happens right now. So yeah, definitely globalization connects work. Globalization allows to uh, Latin America develop uh, a more real prosperity based on commerce based on free market, but uh, globalization, I think, also brought some uh, problems like, like the, the, the corruption levels in, in these countries. Okay, sir. So that brings me to my final question. So uh, with the outbreak of COVID-19, how successful do you think whether Latin American countries in controlling the spread and ensuring the availability of vaccination to the population? Uh, could you collaborate on some of the measures they have taken? Yeah, that, that is something curious that I disagree at all because when the pandemic began in 2000. Uh, no, it wasn't 2019, 2020. Uh, approximately in March, if I'm not wrong, yes, it was March 2020, our president, particularly in Peru, decided to establish a mandatory lockdown for 14 days. It was in the beginning. So people uh, were really worried because Peru, as all the rest of the countries in Latin America were not prepared to face a pandemic. Never. We were completely unprepared to support the level of the pandemic. So what the governments generally did in or taking as a decision to protect people from the COVID-19 virus, uh, they, they established to they established to, to have the mandatory lockdowns to avoid people go out to the streets or to have a normal social life. And the, 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 the first idea that the government and politicians 
had in particularly Peru, where that we need to stop everything. That was just imagine uh, the the president appearing in TV, fourteenth uh, of March. I remember exactly the day because I was with family watching. I think a comedy, <laughs> and everything stopped, and the president appeared in the TV saying that okay. Um, their citizens, I have to confirm that the first COVID-19 case was found in a Peruvian traveler that just arrived from Europe. So I decide as government to uh, establish a mandatory lockdown for 14 or 15 days. That was terrible because people, you know, our level of our economy is based on an informality. We are not at all formal. We have uh, 90% of our economy are informal. What informal means is that we have uh, not 90% of our economy are composed by business companies, uh, people doing business or developing uh, commerce uh, aside of the legal of the legacy. They don't pay taxes. They are not registered. They don't want to pay taxes. They don't want to register it, they don't want to be visible to the tax law or to the formality or legally law. So it's really terrible because our economy is one of the most important, but in the same time, 90% of our economy is composed by informal economy. And the informal economy is, for many reasons, what uh, basically allows people in this country to live and survive. This is something we have to recognize. Of course, we have biggest company, we have foreign companies that uh, allow and they have a lot of uh, employees and they are constantly uh, creating jobs to provide uh, more opportunities to the citizens, but this is only the 10%. Exaggerating can be 15, but more, more than 85% of our economy uh, is completely informal, completely informal. So this informal economy is based on day-to-day -day business, people in the streets, people in the markets, dealing every day. So if you stop this, you destroy them in days. And this is what happened. The government said, okay, we will take the decision to have a mandatory lockdown for the first 14 days. And the people say, okay, I will accept this because I know that COVID-19 is a big and unpredictable virus that even scientists cannot understand it at all. You know, if you remember in 2020, when the COVID-19 started to spread in whole Asia, I think India, India, if I'm not wrong, was one of the most sooner countries that uh, resulted, affected uh, terribly by the pandemic. Imagine how Peru also suffered the consequences when the pandemic began here. And people say, okay, I have some safe money, I have savings, so I think I can resist 14 days. So people, uh, honestly, received as a good intention of the government the mandatory lockdown imposed by Martin Vizcarra government. Uh, 
But once the 14 days passed, uh, the government announced that they are not being able to control the spread, that they are saying problems in the hospital, because one of the terrible things we have to accept is that despite economic growth we have uh, in Peru, or public services as security, as hospital, education, I mean, schools, universities, public universities, public schools, uh, they don't have a good infrastructure. They don't have enough investment on technology or hospitals before the pandemic start uh, were uh, in a bad, in a sad condition. So imagine how, uh, how bad we passed the pandemic because the first months, uh, I will remember always the images I used to watch in news, I used to watch in social medias that was occurring in the streets, people dying, people dying in the streets for the COVID. And the government couldn't control the situation. The, govern, the government, uh, I, I assume as in other countries of the Latin America, they were not able to control the pandemic. They were not able to provide immediately the main medicines, the main uh, vaccinations to the hospitals. Because remember, as I mentioned earlier, before the pandemic began in, in Peru, our hospitals were destroyed or public education were completely isolated. So that was something that, it's a big grape. It's a big and wide range we are not able to close yet. And when pandemic began in Peru, the, four, the first uh, two weeks, the, 15, uh, the first 15 days were acceptable and where it was that the mandatory lockdown established by the government was seen in a friendly and in a super important uh, measure taken by the government because people say okay uh, we understand COVID-19 is a virus that is killing people in China and in Europe so we have to take care of us but in the first months we were really terrible because we were not prepared to to be too higienable or to be super cleaner <laughs> so imagine when the, vi the virus arrived uh, to Peru everyone started to clean and wash uh, their hands uh, every 20 minutes, every 30 minutes, as they never do before. <laughs> so I think if something good uh, pandemic brought to, to Peru is now people are more um, familiarized using more alcohol, using masks, uh, keeping the social distance, something that never will never happen if uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has never uh, start will have never started. So um, once our pandemic arrived here, the, the first restrictions taken by the government is close all type of business temporarily. Uh, so office were canceled to have presence work. Uh, the government decided to extend for the next uh, 14 days. And people were like, okay, okay we can survive another 14 days. But after one month, people start to see the reality. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, or 90% of our economy uh, is composed by informal economy. These people 
need to stay active every day to survive. And how they could survive if the government established a mandatory lockdown and forbid them to, to, uh, to go out and buy things or sell things. Probably, uh, definitely, practically, all the commerce, the day-to-day -day commerce and commercial small business were completely closed for the pandemic because the government established a mandatory lockdown that no one that doesn't belong to hospitals, schools, or especially hospitals or public officials like police, firefighters. If you were not part of this, you were not able to, to stay outside home for longer time. Uh, I will comment some special, uh, not logical decisions the government take. For example, after three months of the pandemic, the government keeps extending the mandatory lockdown. The first time it was 14 days, Peruvian people say, okay, we can survive. And then the government say, no, we need more time. So please keep okay, uh, staying home and don't go out. Okay, 14 days more. So it passed one month, but in the second month, it was not able to. But the government keeps stating uh, or keeps the mandatory lockdown for almost six, seven months additionally. Uh, in July, I think in August of 2020, the government uh, make flexible or flexibilize the restrictions for some companies, for some private uh, business. But, you know, in six months, if you are in formal economy, you cannot survive. <laughs> so it happens or level of poverty increase in the last months due to the COVID-19. We have now more uh, people living in a poor situation than before, before pandemic began, uh, due to the COVID-19 consequence. Uh, even not the COVID-19 consequence. The consequence were provoked by the bad government decisions. That's something we agree. But uh, that was terrible. It was terrible. Um, I think Chile had uh, to take the same discretional uh, option to declare and impose mandatory lockdowns in the whole country moving from city to city yeah it was terrible for also colombia ecuador uh, i think the pandemic uh made us rethink how we are acting and not only as a nation also as government as state um, even governments in whole Latin America needed to develop digital platforms for administrative uh, formalities that normally people had to go on presence to do something. For example, if you wanted to obtain uh, a license, you needed to go to the municipality, to the local government to ask for that. But now almost everything is online. All these type of government formalities that you can do administrative for administrative uh, requirements to open business or to do whatever you need to 
you don't need to go on presence. You can take the page and yeah, now the technology is closer uh, and more friendly to not only Peruvian authorities, but Peruvian citizens. That is something good. That is something good that I have to remarkable because uh, technology um, has helped to Latin American countries to face the terrible consequences of COVID-19. Fortunately, we are still uh, living an economic uh, recovery. We are trying to, to not have this strong uh, social restrictions. For example, our government is saying right now, if in the next coming days they decide to, to give up or to take out the restrictions of not using masks. So I think in April, uh, Peru will be uh, a normal country not using masks. Of course, the vaccination process is also important to mention because thanks to the uh, fast and efficient vaccination process we had in Peru, we have almost uh, more than 60, 65% of Peruvians got two and also three doses. So that is something good because the vaccination campaign and the vaccination process uh, has helped to avoid more deaths. And this is what the information and the data said, that uh, since the uh, vaccination process began, more people are surviving and more uh, hospitals are uh, saying uh, important reduction and decrease of the number of patients uh, needing a bed or a urgency oxygen or dying for COVID-19. So I have to recognize Peru, uh, thanks to the last uh, government, two last governments, I mean, to be honest. Sincerely, the first months of the vaccination process was not too easy, but now, for example, as I mentioned, we have almost 60, even, I don't know, can be a little bit more, 60% of the population got two or three doses of the COVID-19 vaccination. And one of the main and most important ideas and elements to get a real economy recovered was the vaccination. Because people with two or three doses once they are vaccinated, they are more uh, scientific proof probably that they won't die. And this is happening now. People, even in my case, and me and my family, we all got COVID-19. My mom, my dad, uh, we are four, and four of us got COVID-19 in January. But thanks to the vaccination fast process, we got vaccines uh, for October, November, I think. So the time I got COVID, I was already vaccinated with two doses. And yeah, it, it, uh, you have a lot of cough, a little bit. And you can have other symptoms, but it's not too great. Even my dad, my dad is older. Uh, he has 73 years and he got COVID-19. 
but he suffered a little bit uh, the consequence of COVID-19 because it was not too strong in his body, fortunately. I think it was thanks to the vaccination because he had, at that time he got COVID, he had two doses of the AstraZeneca vaccination. And yeah, for sure, he was taking some pills and he suffered a little bit of cough, but he recovered immediately with no problems of uh, his saturation, oxygen, uh, even we didn't need to go to the hospital. So I think uh, vaccination process has helped a lot, not only Peru, but all the Latin American countries to recover economy. But well, start asking how to, uh, to face uh, different uh, perspectives and to use more technology to, to be closer to a digital world that allow people to stay connected uh, wherever they want, whenever they wish. Okay, so with that, uh, we are good to wrap up today's session. So thank you, sir, for the insightful comments you made about the region. It really helped in getting a better understanding about the crisis and many other prevailing issues over there. We extend our gratitude towards you for taking your time for us and for being present with us today. Thank you, sir.